This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services, Inc. UBS Financial Services, Inc. does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. The Winged and Ready Guest and UBS Financial Services are not affiliated. Hi, and welcome back to Winged and Ready. We are here today with Elizabeth Abel. She's a thought leader in philanthropy and an expert in fundraising. She's a senior vice president at CCS Fundraising and has helped countless charities in leading their capital campaigns and development initiatives. In fact, she has helped so many charities over the past few years that it's in the in millions of dollars that she's helping them raise. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I know the whole point of our listening audience is to give them tidbits and insights that can help them. And I'm massively encouraged and excited that we're touching on the not-for-profit space today, especially going into year end. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. I know you also teach at the University of Pennsylvania and you're consulting with so many clients. Tell me what's on top of mind right now. What are you teaching your students? So I am teaching students and working with nonprofit leaders to help them prepare with the knowledge and tools to grow their fundraising programs for their nonprofit organizations so that they can have the greatest impact and benefit to the communities that they serve. And I love that in your bio, it says you teach fundraising and philanthropy, the donor journey. It is a journey. So many people underappreciate the length and effort and time commitment that not-for-profits have to put into to engage with donors. Tell us a little bit about what that journey looks like. I would be happy to. And I would start by saying that every donor journey is unique. And I have worked probably with hundreds, um, if not thousands, of donor strategy conversations I've had over the years when thinking about how to approach a donor and how do you make a connection between a donor who has the ability to make a meaningful gift and an organization that's doing really, really meaningful work. And when we think about the donor journey, there's really four stages. The first is cultivate. It's how are we building a relationship with that donor, helping them understand what our mission is, what's the work that we do, and why it's important. The second is brief, and that's really where we sit down with that donor and we brief them on a specific campaign or funding priority or opportunity to make a difference through philanthropy. The third phase is solicit, which is when we make a specific ask of a donor and we ask them to consider making, whether it's 10,000, 100,000, a million or $10 million investment in an organization at this time. And then the fourth and final phase is stewardship, which is really when we recognize and thank a donor for their generosity and we help make them feel so great that they are, you know, really willing to consider making a gift again. That's wonderful. So what are the four just listed out all together? Cultivate? Cultivate, brief, solicit, and steward. Cultivate, brief, solicit, and steward. So C-B-S-S. 
Got it. That's amazing. And let's dig into cultivate a little bit more because that is a pretty broad label. What are some of the action items within the cultivate stage? So this may sound funny to some people, but in many ways, cultivation is like dating. It's really all about getting to know, getting to know the other person, getting to know your donor. You know, what brings them energy? What brings them meaning when they think about philanthropy? Mm. So oftentimes, um, if you are a school, for example, and you're cultivating your current families, how can you bring them into the building and talk about the student experience and, you know, how philanthropy impacts their children? If you're an alum of a school or a university, for example, and you're cultivating someone, get them back on campus, get them excited about the work that you're doing. Talk about what's new and, you know, what's um, kind of innovative as it pertains to the work that's happening. And then I think if you're a local food bank or a smaller organization, how can you get people in the room, how can you build community? And I think that's really what cultivation is about. It's about building community and connection around your nonprofit and the work that you do. Connection is the word that was percolating in my mind too, that cultivating stage is about connectivity. And interestingly, the, all the things you listed too are, are very in-person. It's, it's engaging and getting that connectivity in a, in a face-to-face environment, are people able to do it as successfully in a virtual environment? We have found that they are. And I would actually argue that the virtual remote environment has allowed um, for more efficient donor journeys in many cases, because, you know, for example, let's say you're a national organization and you're based in New York and you have a donor out in LA, it could take several weeks just to get a meeting on the calendar for the trip to your LA trip and what other donors you're going to meet and what if the one donor you want to meet isn't available. And so I think before remote work became normalized, you know, just getting that could take six months. Now you can hop on a Zoom call and still plan your trip to LA. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, we've started to see accelerated donor journeys because of accessibility and ease of Zoom and phone calls. But we are seeing now there's like a, a, a yearning for, for things to be back in person and people yeah. are really excited to be together again. People have been starved for connectivity and I think it's so interesting that even though we've all been in person for a number of months now, each time you're in person, people have a little bit of like a wow factor around them. They're like, wow, this is so wonderful to be in person. This is so wonderful to see you. This is so wonderful to be connecting. So I appreciate that. It sounds too, through the virtual instances, you don't necessarily have to erase being in person, but perhaps again, you could fast forward those touch points so that when you are in person, you're at a little bit of a later stage than where you normally would have been. Is that something you agree with or utilize? I do. I think it's a really fair assessment that you're able to jumpstart these conversations because now people are used to speaking on the phone and they're used to speaking in Zoom and people have just become so much more creative and how to maximize time that we're mm -hmm. spending with donors. And I think now there's complementary touch points. So you have a Zoom call this month, next quarter you meet in person and 
it takes the pressure off of having to do everything in person, which for the fundraiser is really helpful because yeah. if you think about the number of donors you can meet with in half a morning on Zoom versus, you know, one breakfast and it takes you 45 minutes to get there and back. Mm-hmm. So now that one breakfast turned into three virtual donor meetings. Absolutely. I mean, this podcast is a demonstration of it. It's not that long ago I would be recording with people in person and now we're doing it over a phone call, which is tremendous. I want to ask you one more thing on this cultivation, which I clearly have a lot of curiosity around and how much do you like that alliteration, cultivation curiosity? Um, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) How much is the board involved with the cultivation process? So the board's engagement in fundraising is like one of my favorite topics in and of itself. And I think oftentimes, um, we forget that board members are some of the greatest assets mm-hmm. to nonprofits. They are champions of your mission. They are leaders in their community. They have high profiles. They're respected. They're credible. And they elevate the work that you do each and every day by serving as ambassadors. And I think there are so many ways to engage board members as fundraising ambassadors. And not every board member is going to want to engage in the same way, right? So some board members might love asking others for money, others might hate it. And so how can you figure out what are the natural and diverse strengths of your board members and then align those with the different parts of that donor journey? I love that. Because you could probably slot in donors based on their different personality profiles and different parts of that CBSS um, construct that you have. Exactly. So let's say I'm social and I love hosting. I could host a parlor meeting. Let's say I'm perhaps don't really like big crowds, but love the work of the organization. I could call donors to thank them for their gifts mm-hmm. or I can write thank you notes as a board member. And I think there are so many ways to leverage your board to support your fundraising program, especially if you're a smaller organization and you don't necessarily have tremendous staff capacity. How can you engage your board members to be partners in your fundraising activity. Absolutely. You know, as a institutional consultant, I'm often talking to committee members, sometimes to board members too, whether in an educational or really more in a discovery for myself. And asking that why question, I think, is so important. Also, we're both board members ourselves. People ask me why I'm involved with my charity. I think that lends to leading into that cultivation then briefing scenario as well. And, and I agree with you full heartedly, the board members aren't utilized enough and they're not igniting their own networks enough and sharing their own story as to why they became a part of the not-for-profit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think too, like when you, I know when we met um, before recording this and you shared a little bit more about you know, your own journey joining the board of the organization that you're on, like, what is that moment to you? And what was your story as a board member? And I think the the most powerful way that board members can be fundraising ambassadors is simply by sharing their stories, like why they're involved, what's meaningful for them. I've been doing, um, I've been doing a number of board retreats recently, and we always start off with a storytelling exercise to engage people in the conversation around why we're here today. It's to support fundraising, but really 
we're here today as a group of leaders who are here today because each of you have a personal story and reason for supporting this organization's work and mission. Wow, that's so interesting. How do you extract the story? What's part of the exercise? Can you share with us? Yes, so we have a number of discussion prompts, but part of it goes down to like when you're a board member and you're communicating the work of the organization, how are you sharing it? You know, Kendra Hall, um, she's the author of this book, Stories That Stick, and I think about the sticking part. And, and it really becomes like, how do you create a story that sticks around the work of your nonprofit? And how are you communicating in a way that inspires people to want to learn more and take action and donate? The power of story is one that is so real and so tangible in every walk of life. I think we should all be able to master our own stories and more importantly, appreciate the stories of others. It's fantastic that you're doing that as part of your retreat. I'm sure that the board members are just tingling by the time they're finished. That is the hope. And I, I mean, personally, I want them to feel like energy after these conversations. Mm. I want board members, and, and I've seen it, like board members walk into the room, they're like, all right, we're here to talk about fundraising. It's like, I mean, it's like painful sometimes to see some of them are just like not interested in talking about fundraising. And then to see the transformation over three to four hours when it's like, you know what, it wasn't fundraising, it was storytelling and, and donor journeys. And it's just so much more, I think, than what people oftentimes um, perceive. I agree. And, you know, I'm a big supporter of money. I think that money gets shunned so often and gets labeled as the bad guy in the room. But really, it's money is what is enabling these not-for-profits and charities and educational institutions and hospitals to do what they need to do. So we should get comfortable with the story that enables the money to flow because the money will come naturally after, after a good engagement, I think. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny, like as a fundraiser, I'm not shy about money. Like I feel like talking about money for me is not weird or taboo because it's literally what I do all day. <laughs> but um, it's it's a culture mind shift, I think, mm -hmm. too. I think historically talking about money and I, and I would love to hear your thoughts. I know kind of your background in wealth management, like historically talking about money is like feels taboo, but then when you talk about it in the context of philanthropy and you think about donor recognition opportunities and paddle raises, there's like an energy around it because it's not just money, but it's philanthropy as a way to shape lives and change institutions and yeah. kind of innovate and, and create like a the world that we want to live in. So Absolutely. I think it's less like the dollars and cents of the money and more like the profound impact that the money can have on communities and cultures and lives. Absolutely. Money can be a form of energy. It truly can be something that enables all of the missions, goals, or if it's a family, they're acting out their values within a community. You know, money is the turn belt that gets those things out into the world, into the open and to your point, when you talk about stories, when you learn the why behind what somebody wants to achieve or what they have achieved and what's important to the next, when you unpack that story and they understand, wow, this is what I have done and this is what I can do. And I have all of these players around me who are excited for the next stage. 
all of a sudden money becomes a really, really endearing, exciting, energetic thing because it's an enabler. Mm-hmm. I love that. An enabler. Yeah. I think that's spot on. Absolutely. It's, it's not the, um, there are a lot of blockages around money that I hope many people can start to remove in their lives and just help the world become a better place by letting it flow a little bit more freely. I agree. I think that's really beautifully said. So we've gotten through the sea. We haven't touched on the, <laughs> on the other three components. So let's talk about briefing a little bit. After that first stage, after the cultivating and you know, sub, subtopic connection, where does, where does the briefing, what's the bridge to get to the briefing and, and to get to the more serious stuff? So I think briefing is interesting because not every donor journey needs a brief. I think it's really most relevant for the larger major donor gift request where we're asking for like an above and beyond significant figure. So I would say kind of like take that into consideration as we think about the donor journey holistically. But really the brief is the opportunity for the donor to ask the tough questions, Mm -hmm. to ask questions around, so you want to raise $10 million. What's the breakdown of that $10 million? What are the funding priorities? Where's the money going to go? What's the impact? What's the timeline? What's your budget? All of those lofty questions for donors that really want to know that information. And not every donor does. Some donors will give because they believe in the vision and they trust the leadership, and that's amazing. And then there are other donors for whom they want to know the nitty-gritty details, Mm -hmm. and that's where the role of a briefing meeting comes in. If you're going to name a building after me, I want to know why, (laughs) right? Right. Um, Um, So briefing's not always going to be part of the equation. It is, uh, it falls in the category of it depends or it's on a case by case basis. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. And I think it's, it's really about, you know, sitting down and having that heart to heart and, and understanding what is it that the donor wants to know and what questions can we answer for that person. And what's the first S? I've already forgotten what it stands for. So cultivating briefing. Solicit when we ask for the money. (laughs) The big ask. Oh my goodness, this must be such a hard one to approach for so many people. It is. I think there is a lot of anticipation and for some anticipatory anxiety around making a gift request. But the biggest piece of advice I always give is to prepare to practice your ask sentence and to be specific. So don't just say, will you join me in supporting this campaign, but say, will you join me in making a gift of $25,000 to support this campaign? You want to be specific. And then after you make that ask, you want to be quiet and you want to let the donor speak first and hear what they have to say and, you know, have a number of different responses in your back pocket to guide that conversation forward based on how they respond to your gift request. So prepare the specific ask, practice the ask. Then after you've made the ask, which I'm sure so many people, their energy levels and their nerves are on fire and being quiet afterwards may be the larger challenge in that sequence. For sure. I mean, especially if you're making a bold ask, 
and the donor's quiet, it's because the donor's thinking and processing. And, you know, it's in many ways, sometimes it, it might feel like a negotiation, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you put your ask out there, let the other person respond to it before you jump in and say, oh, but if that's too much, I understand. We can, we can think about a lower ask if you're more comfortable, because for all you know, they could be thinking out like in their minds, okay, you know, $25,000 over five years, it's $5,000. I, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and before they, they finish that thought process, you've already jumped in and told them they don't have to. Right. You, you've already altercated their thought process by not allowing them to have it. Right. That's so, so, so interesting to me. And that is a lot of what you're saying too. I mean, if you're not in the not-for-profit world and you're listening to this podcast, if you need to do anything related to business strategy, this is fabulous advice for business strategy in general. I thought it was really interesting that you had a four-part process that you go through. Um, way back in the day, I, I did a lot of business strategy and the asset management side. And one of the things I would coach people towards is, you know, it takes eight touch points before you get to a success. So you really need to think about the milestones and how you're gonna progress something forward to get through those eight touch points. You've embedded that by having four major points already. And the other huge thing that I always coached people on is be okay with an uncomfortable silence. You have to let silence work for you. And it's okay to sit there and not say anything and wait for the other person to digest, to think, and to let them speak. I could not agree more. I think as humans, we're uncomfortable with silence. It feels uncomfortable. And I think there's something to be said for what you just emphasized, to like embrace the silence as an opportunity versus a discomfort. It is an opportunity and it is so unnatural as human beings, like you noted, so unnatural, but it is such a powerful tool and it's the simplest tool, but it's so hard to implement. So when you make that ask everybody, be quiet afterwards. I would, I would demonstrate an uncomfortable silence right now, but I don't think that would be really fun for her. I know. And the other thing I would say to you, is to ask with confidence. Like there's so much research and strategy and preparation that goes in to these asks. And I think it's so important that when we make that ask, we're not framing it as like a question, but rather an invitation. Mm. Like, would you, would you consider making this investment of $100,000 to shape the student experience or to help, you know, conduct research for this specific cancer saving drug? I mean, the, the important part is that you make that ask sentence in one breath, so it needs to be concise. But to me as a person, what's important is that the fundraiser who's making the ask or the board member who's making the ask is confident mm. because that instills confidence in the donor who's hearing that gift request being made of them. They need to know with a surety that where their money and their dollars is going and what it's going towards is backed by confidence. It's pretty simple, right? A hundred percent. So let's get to that last S. So the last S is stewardship. And I will say this one is to me like so straightforward yet oftentimes 
falls off of the radar a little bit, especially in smaller development shops where you have, um, you have like deadline driven priorities and ambitious fundraising goals. And if you're a director of development and you need to ask for money or thank someone for money, oftentimes you're going to lean the scale more towards ask. So I don't want to underemphasize how important so, uh, stewardship is because it is so much easier, as we know, to renew a gift or increase a gift from a past donor than it is to get a brand new gift from a current, from a new donor. So stewardship is really about thanking, recognizing, and making donors feel good about the investments that they've made. And the thanking part can go to those shy board members that don't really want to cultivate or have the parlor party or, or be out for the ask, they can write those thank you notes, like you said. And those thank you notes mean so much. I remember I was working with the museum a few years ago and um, a board member would come in like every Wednesday and it was maybe like one hour, two hours and just write thank you notes. And it meant so much to donors to get those handwritten notes in the mail or a quick email or a quick phone call, like it makes people feel really good when a member of the board takes the time to say thank you for your commitment to our organization. And there are fewer things better than getting a lovely handwritten note in the mail. When somebody takes oh, the time. Especially these days, yeah. <laughs> right? In fact, it's usually on, like bills and advertising. I know so. it's to have some joy come in the mail. We should all, you know, write a thank you note to whomever after you listen to this podcast. I know I've got three thank you notes on my list to send out just this afternoon. Um, I love thank you notes, and I think they're so wonderful to receive. So we should all try to write a thank you to somebody today or tomorrow. I would ask all the listeners when you hit stop to write a thank you note to somebody that means something to you in your life. Such a beautiful idea. I'm gonna do that too. Good. Is there anything else that you would like to share as we're coming to a close? The, those four strategies I think are brilliant and I know I'm gonna implement them in my own life and I certainly will share them with the endowments and foundations that I work with. But there are any other points that you would like to leave our listening audience with? I would just remind everyone what philanthropy means. Um, you know, it comes from the Greek word philos, which means um, loving, and anthropos, which means humankind. And mm -hmm. so when you think about philanthropy together, um, it really means the desire to promote the welfare of others expressed by a generous donation to social causes. And so whether you donate $100 or $1,000 or more, I really do believe that every person is part of this global movement to make the world a better place through philanthropy. And so I just leave you with that thought. Like, what does philanthropy mean to you? And how can you do one act of you know, loving kindness each day? That's beautiful. And you just named the title of our podcast, Loving Kindness. Thank you for that. What a pleasure it was to speak with you today. I hope we can have a follow-up in a year or so to talk about what trends are in place for and what has changed for you, whether it's in your coursework or in your day-to-day -day as a consultant to philanthropies. 
such an honor to have your expertise and knowledge today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure and a lot of fun to have this conversation. Thank you. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.